Welcome to Agnes, the late antique medieval and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm joined by Dr. Valerie Hoagland. Dr. Hoagland earned her PhD in Italian studies at New York University, and she's going to talk to us about her doctoral dissertation project, Unstable Exemplarity, the Politics of Female Biography in Early Modern Italy. Dr. Hoagland, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by talking about the phrase early modern. What does that mean? That's a really good question. In some ways, it's really simple, and in other ways, it's really complicated, which is what happens in academia, right? So most simply, uh, we're talking about a period after the Middle Ages and pre-modernity. And depending on what country you're studying or what cultural space you're studying, uh, the lines of that will be delineated differently. In the field of Italian studies, it roughly means 1400 to 1600, broadly defined. If you want to get more specific about how it's been traditionally delineated, we're looking at starting with the death of Petrarch in the 1370s and ending with the Counter-Reformation in the mid-1500s, um, which is traditionally seen as when you know the, the, the burgeoning culture of the Renaissance suddenly stopped um, because of the Counter-Reformation. But there's a lot of debate about that because it's not true. It's much more nuanced than that. So, so yeah, we're, we're roughly talking about 1400 to 1600. Uh, why, why use early modern rather than uh, the Renaissance? That's that's also a really good question. Um, everybody's answer to that is different, uh, but in the field of Italian studies, it has it's laden with particular meaning, all of which is the fault of Jacob Burkhart, uh, who wrote this this seminal book called The Civilization of Italy in the Renaissance, and really defined the Renaissance period as just the beginning of modernity, the thing that led us to what would eventually be modernity. And in doing so, very problematically categorized the preceding period and the succeeding period as like the Dark Ages. So this was this insanely um, beautiful period of cultural and intellectual growth that had nothing before it and nothing after it. And early modern is kind of a way that scholars in the field tried to come, come up with a term that redefines those parameters in a way that is less problematic than like Renaissance traditionally viewed. So it's kind of a way of saying we don't totally buy into everything Burkhardt said about the Renaissance and we're <laughs> going to try to make it more nuanced and and broaden it. The term early modern also uh, tends to broaden what you're looking at. Um, so you can look at material culture and history and literature and art all in one thing, whereas the Renaissance can be defined a little bit more narrowly. And just one more question on this topic. Uh, listeners to Agnes will remember uh, the interview with Dr. Sarah Lynch, and her project also deals with the 15th century. But in her book, she used the title Late Medieval. Mm. So it sounds like there's some overlap here. Can you talk about the overlap between Late Medieval and Early Modern? It's like you can read my mind. These, these are these are the three exact points that I wanted, ideally would have liked to hit uh, when discussing the term Early Modern. So the Renaissance just was, it happened a lot earlier in Italy than it happened elsewhere in Europe. It was the first one. Uh, so 1400 to 1600 is a period that in other European countries is still defined as the, as the medieval period, but it Italy, it's not. So let's move away from early modern now and uh, move to another word that uh, you have in the title of your dissertation project. uh, And this is biography. Uh, Can you tell us what biography is as a literary genre, uh, what its origins are, uh, and maybe what the tradition of biography is up to early modernity? That's that you're gonna have to remind me of some of those sub questions, I think, as we go, because it's a lot to tackle at once. But it's a really good question. I think, um, to properly understand it, you have to suspend your 
uh, ideas of modern biography, like, you know, what you just read about Steve Jobs. It's not <laughs> what we're talking about here. Um, it's become a quite different genre a- as we know it now. But I think the first thing to point out is that not very many people would in, in the scholarly field would consider biography literature. Because you asked me what it was as a literary genre, um, and most people think of it as history or historiography, um, and that it's not a text, it's like facts about a person written down, which is more like what we think of biography today. We, we read a biography and we trust what it says. We believe that it has been thoroughly researched and what's contained within it are facts. And that's just not true uh, when we're talking about um, early modern or, or ancient or medieval biography, um, at least in the in the Italian sphere. That being said, though, it's really important for me to actually define it as literature. That's part of what my project is attempting to do is to say these are texts that are worth reading as texts, because we can't take their historical facts at face value. There's a lot of other interesting literary stuff going on. Uh, but simply put, biography as a genre represents in writing whether you view that writing as history or literature, the lives of individuals or groups of people, uh, typically with some sort of didactic purpose. So the biographies are meant to teach us something, um, either to be like that person who was very good or do not be like that person who was very (laughs) bad. Um, So you're meant as a reader to emulate the behavior or to avoid the behavior. And in that sense, they're like highly rhetorical texts. They're supposed to drive you to action. And what what are the origins of the genre? Yeah, so biography, at least as we think of it today, and it, as it was picked up in the early modern period, comes straight out of classical antiquity. So Suetonius, Valerius Maximus, Plutarch uh, are probably the most well-known examples of that. Um, but they all wrote in a tradition that would become known as the De Viris Illustribus, or On Famous Men, chronicling the lives of famous men throughout classical history. And so your, your project is, is looking at uh, some real changes in the genre uh, in the early modern period. So I wonder if you could just maybe give us a little overview of what the genre of biography looks like right before early modernity. What is a, what is a medieval biography? What does a late medieval biography look like? That's a really good question. Uh, we don't totally know. Not a lot of people are working on that. Um, so I would start by saying that pesky Burkhart guy that we mentioned <laughs> earlier would say there isn't one. Instead of we don't know, uh, that's obviously never true. It's just no one's gone to look at it enough yet. What I can say is that while classical biography focused um, categorically on figures like kings and warriors um, and authors, there was a, a larger shift towards religious figures or at least kings and warriors, authors that were also Christians in in this geographic area at this time. So ecclesiastical writers um, and then also saints. We get a lot of hagiography or hagiography, however you decide you want to pronounce that word, <laughs> uh, which is just it, lives of saints are a distinct tradition from from biography. But that being said, there was there was a clear continuation of the day wearies or on famous men tradition. It just largely focused on collections of biographies and in much smaller numbers. People just weren't writing as many of them as they did in the classical period. And they started writing a bunch more of them in the early modern period. So what is it then, Dr. Hoagland, that changed about the genre of biography in early modern Italy? Um, the answer is a lot, <laughs> a lot of stuff, uh, whole dissertations worth perhaps. <laughs> All right. Um, so for one thing, it really picked up again. There was just more of it. So the Renaissance, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, was a, a period largely defined by a resurgence of interest in classical, uh, Greek and Roman antiquity. And people started going around looking for ancient texts that had long since been lost. And a lot of scholars, authors, we're going to say humanists, 
jump-started some pretty popular ancient literary genres. Uh, the biggest ones of those were dialogues, epistolary exchange, orations, and then I'm arguing also biographies. So, so these these people that went around uh, finding these ancient texts and set about basically imitating them to an incredibly faithful extent the classical authors that they, that they held in great esteem and the three most important figures for this at the beginning of the early modern period in Italian studies are what are called the three crowns. Is that something other people know? I, I don't know. The um, yeah. So they're called the tre carone or three crowns. And uh, that's Petrarch, Dante and Boccaccio. Oh, of course that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and Petrarch and Boccaccio in particular dabbled in biography and because they were so well respected and esteemed in their own time and in subsequent generations, other people sought out to copy them as, well so you have kind of the the heavy hitters that are copying the authority of of classically classically esteemed authors and then people who want to copy them um so that's the first thing there was just a lot more of it um and the second thing is a huge shift in format uh with the biographical form expanding to include lots of other things like funeral oratory um and portrait biography pairings that was really popular uh, and eventually autobiographical writing, which is not something I address, but it's very interesting. And uh, then the third and most important for my project was that there was a broadening of the demographic um, of not only authors, but subjects. So there were more people writing about it and there were more kinds of things they were writing about. And uh, well, so they started writing about women. That's what they did. If you're going to broaden the subject, let's bring the whole other gender in. <laughs> so yeah, they started talking, they started writing biographies of women. This was basically with some nuance a brand new thing yeah and I'm, I'm really excited to hear uh what you're doing with uh the politics of female part of uh, the dissertation title uh, but before we get to that i'd like to just talk a little bit about about the sources that you're using about them as evidence so i'm interested uh in where they're found how you located them how it is that you actually worked with them and then then maybe let's dig in on the the content of of them after that so i largely worked with early printed books. So what does that mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, it's largely saying not this, not that, not the other thing more than it's saying it is one particular thing. So what that means is it's, I mostly was not working with manuscripts. Um, so something that was handwritten. I was mostly working with stuff that was printed by a printing press um, and therefore available in more than one copy, even if limited. Uh, but they are yeah early modern printed books. So books that were printed in the period that I am talking about that I previously defined. And these early, early printed books are in Italian and Latin. Uh, so that's an important thing to know. Oh, so you have to use both them. languages. In so you your use work. both languages. And that is also a little bit um, reductive because Italian didn't exist yet. But as we know it today, what, what we call what is spoken today is standard Italian and Italian was just not standardized at the time. So depending on where you lived, you were writing with little different dialect or spelling or, or syntax flares. That's a whole other subdiscipline. But and Dante really helped make the way Italian was spoken in Florence the the way of literature um, and more scholarly writing. So a lot of it is vaguely Tuscan, uh, but there is no, it's important to remember that there is no Italy at this time. So there is no Italian either. Uh, so that's not just one language. Often I found that when I was reading what I'm calling the quote unquote Italian texts, I was relying heavily on knowledge of Latin, Italian, and Spanish um, to, to get me through figuring it out. Yeah. So, but, but that's just to say that almost all of the sources that I use are, are primary texts 
and they have not been published in, contemporarily. They've not, they don't have publications um, that are easy to get now, and they're not translated into English. So, so where, where did you find these then, and, and how did you how did you know of their existence? Yeah, um, so they're they're found in libraries, archival libraries all over Europe, and actually a lot a lot of university libraries um, in the United States as well. And so I'm going to have to jump into how did I locate them to kind of also answer where they found. So there's just a couple cool websites, you know, the way you find <laughs> stuff now, um, where you can search all of the the catalogs um, online of archival libraries all across Italy. Um, so OPAC um, is a big one. Uh, and then, you know, WorldCat, the same way you might find other books in, in libraries in the U.S. You can you can find them there if you know the title. It gets hard, though, because not everybody spells everything the same way. Like, is that an I or a J? Uh, or, you know, and even like Boccaccio doesn't have a standard spelling at the time. So how did the library choose to input it? So you had to weed through some things um so you locate them just by searching by searching around uh these databases on the internet um but that's once you know the title of them (laughs) so you have to somehow know they exist which is reading through secondary scholarship talking to other people and saying hey i found this weird book going through going actually physically to an archival library and poking around their catalog and seeing what is like quote unquote on the shelf uh, next to them and things like that. Um, so you have to travel. You have to travel to get these things, mostly. Google Books has done actually a really great job of digitizing some early printed books and making them available online for free. If you have to check your citations last minute, it's very useful. <laughs> but yeah, you go you go to Italy, mostly, and you sit in the library and you take some photographs. Excellent. Well, let's let's dig in now on, on the content uh, of these uh, uh printed early modern books, what type of women are being written about by biographers? Um, that's, that's a really, it's a great question. It's the crux of it all. Um, so uh, the first thing that's worth saying is just women at all, women at all are being written about. Um, and the, the first person to do this is Boccaccio. Um, and he has a biographical collection called De Mulieribus Claris, which is on famous women. We could get into the previous Latin that I used was de wiris illustribus. Notice that I didn't say de mulieribus illustribus. I had this other word, claris. So that's a whole thing um, that's very subtle and probably boring to your listeners. Uh, but it means on famous women. And so basically, he Petrarch had written his own de wiris or on famous men collection. And Boccaccio was like, all right, I can one up that on famous women. So it's a way of imitating classical antiquity, but bringing some novelty to it in a, in a little bit of a show-offy way. And the women that he included in his collection were largely ancient, ancient pagan women um, with both positive and negative exempla, meaning people to emulate and people to not emulate. Does he do those in pairs? No, he doesn't do them in okay. pairs. It's, he's a mix of styles of the earlier classical biographical authors. Uh, there are 106 chapters a couple, like maybe two or three are paired women. Like you'll get two Amazonian queens in one short chapter. Um, but otherwise, they're, they're individual. Each biography is of one woman, but it is in a collection, which is interesting. They're collected into this, like this is what woman can be or is uh, on a broader scale. Um, so yeah, so Boccaccio had classic classical pagan women. And then 
that started to shift over time. So like who was included and who wasn't included is one of one of the major things that I trace. And I know that you're going to get to a question later about what I'm contrib what this dissertation contributes. And one of the things that is just it's a compendium. It, it contributes saying who they wrote about and where. Um, so I have about 50 pages of appendices that are just lists I made of the women that are included in these collections. And then if they're paired, the women they're paired with, or if other women are referenced within their biography, what other women are referenced. Um, so connections that are being drawn across across women. But as time goes on, we get to two other types of women included in these biographical collections, sometimes saints thrown in also with these uh, non-saintly women. Uh, but then we get aristocrats of the Italian Renaissance basically also thrown in what I would call contemporary women rather than ancient pagan women. And what, what type of women are these? Uh, presumably they're elite women of some sort. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, all kinds. Um, yeah, they, they're all elite aristocratic women, largely from um, the the central to northern Italian court system, because you have a lot of a lot more education of women popping up there at, at the time. And you, you, I could have gone about writing about these women in a different way. You had to pick a group. I would say the three main groups are queens, warriors, and uh, intellectuals of some sort. And my dissertation focuses on on the intellectuals of some sort, creative or intellectual women that were producing intellectual and creative projects in the public sphere under their own names: authors, poets, actresses, musicians, that kind of thing. Well, let's uh, let's give listeners just a little taste then of. Um... Uh, what one of these women would be like? Uh, surely you have a, a favorite uh, creative or intellectual woman that you've uh, that you've encountered in these biographies. Can you tell us a little bit about about who that is? It's not the sexiest answer <laughs> that I have. My favorite one, um, my my favorite one is a very early author. Her name is Isota Nogarola, and um, she was writing at the end of the 1400s. One of the earliest female humanists, and I love her. Uh, through through a lot of things that I've projected onto her, you know, I'm interested in gender. I'm interested in the roles that women can and cannot play in contemporary society. And this was a huge thing that drew me to this project of wanting to stand, understand the origins of that or how it played out at a different time in a different space. Um, so I am projecting here. But but basically, Isota, like any woman at the time of, of her status, had two options. She could join a convent or she could get married. Um, and she didn't do either, uh, which was just, I just think is remarkable. It's really cool. And she kept writing. A lot of women, even if they joined a convent or got married, stopped writing um, after they did that. And she did neither and continued to be intellectually active, which, you know, intellectualism was linked with promiscuity at this point in time for women. So it was in some ways a very subversive or dangerous thing to do. Uh, she wrote on religious topics. She wrote like on a dialogue on, you know, who sinned first or harder, Adam or Eve, oh, things was, like that. What was her answer? <laughs> um, it's complicated. She was actually a, a very, very um, smart philosopher. So I think you have to go confront her argument and see if, uh, see if the subtleties of it convince you or not, or what you even think, what side she's actually on, because that's a great question. There's a lot of paradox involved. 
have you had to make that interpretation for your project or are you still able to get away with just saying it's complicated? I'm able to get away with saying right. it's complicated. No, I haven't had to enter into that debate. I'm There just wasn't the space to to del- delve into the text about these women and then all the texts that they wrote. I talk about them, obviously, they're contextual, mm-hmm. but um, I'm not analyzing them. So what is it then when you, when you put all these biographies together, when you look at them uh, over the sort of long period uh, of your study, what do you see? What I see is shifting attitudes towards gender uh, with, with very, very large shifts that I think can be traced through what's happening to biographical writing on women, what form it's taking, what kind of things are being said about those women and what kind of women are being included. You know, so I said it kind of flippantly, like, oh, contemporary women, that's a huge deal. You don't write a biography of, of someone that's still alive or who was recently alive that, um, that's like a huge honor. Um, it says something really powerful. So, so that that is a huge new shift. But, but basically, I think that traditionally biography has been read as a series of historical um, facts that you can't get anything else out of. And what you really can get something out of is that you can see that what's happening to the prominence of women in the cultural sphere at this time is influencing how they're being written about, but how they're being written about is also influencing the shifting prominence of women in the cultural sphere at this time. Um, So I see it as a two-way relationship, and that is not something that's been done before. Um, So what I think you see is largely an anxiety about what women are capable of doing being legitimized by biographies of those women um, that slowly fades over time uh, and people get more comfortable with 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 women as individuals and writing about them and them having their own authority that peaks really at the end of at the end of the period legitimizing women in public spheres that had traditionally been restricted to men must have met with some kind of resistance remarkably not so much um, because women were serving a, a, a very important function for the men that were writing about them there again I don't think there's it's so hard when you're a scholar you want to you want to couch everything you want to say like but it's all so much more complicated <laughs> um, you know so I am simplifying things there was a little bit of this attitude of hey classical antiquity that was great we're Italy we're picking that back up again but we're gonna do it better we're super cool we're super smart let let us show you how oh my god so smart that even women do this stuff here and so if you have a man saying oh my gosh I taught a woman to do this thing and look now she does it you're really saying something about yourself right it's it props you up a little bit um so they had really a, a there was reciprocity in 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 the function here for for women being legitimized, but then somehow also men and their intellectual products being legitimized as well. And and a lot of these women too, you know, I don't want to trick people into thinking this was a perfect time to be a woman. Often, like if you were a painter, it's because your dad was a painter, and it says something about how great of a painter your dad was that he was able to teach you to do that, and you were also legitimized by the fact that it was your dad. Also, you couldn't have been a painter if your dad wasn't a painter because they wouldn't teach you that. You can't go to painting school. They don't let <laughs> women do that. And so same thing with like oratory. So you're probably familiar with Hortensius and Hortensia. Yeah, of this? course. Yeah. yeah. So, right. You have a, a daughter that is the daughter of a very famous uh, Roman orator. And it's she was so good that she came even maybe to surpass her father. But we're still saying something pretty awesome about her dad when we're saying that. Right. And something that would have been kind of impossible without her 
without her dad. So one thing that's really huge here is a traditional Aristotelian view of what women are just biologically capable of. So still still very prominent in universities um, and educated spaces at the time was an Aristotelian view of women wherein they are just by their biology and physiology, biological sex, just inherently less capable of being rational and smart um, and good at things. They are just an imperfect version of a man. They tried to, you know, a man was, someone tried to make a man and then something went wrong and you got a woman instead. And there's inferiority there that has like real intellectual and physical repercussions. Um, And so when that's the, when when Aristotle is such a prominent and well-revered text, but then you find yourself in a society where women start to do things. Like if you have a dynastic court system and women need to be educated to be part of that and start to become co-rulers and produce their own writings because you got some diplomats coming over. Hey, oh my God, my six-year-old daughter can do a Latin oration. Check this out, right? That becomes a really important function of, of the culture. So you have these women that are doing these things. Aristotle says they can't do. No one's going to argue with Aristotle, what do you do? How do you counter this argument? And, uh, and and what I argue is that one way of doing that is using biography, saying we have this classically sanctioned form um, that gives authority to the people that are written about. So let's just give a bunch of examples that people can't argue with. They're classically sanctioned. They're historical. And, and that kind of legitimizes what is actually happening to women at the time and then allows them to to be to act that way further. Um, to more acclaim. But that's not to say that there wasn't pushback. There were a lot of treatises on uh, the inferiority of women. Uh, So I'm looking at one genre in particular biography that says largely good things about these women. But another way to look at this topic and that it's been looked at before is through treatises on what's called the worth of women. Um, (laughs) And and these are treatises with titles like the worth of women or on the superiority or inferiority of women. Um, And you get these long diatribes, but often in these treatises, the ones that are arguing a a more quote unquote pro woman argument, they use biographical examples. That's very interesting. To legitimize their argument. Um, so that's why the compendium of biographies is really important, too, because if a, if a more traditionally literary text is making an argument about gender in this period and they're giving exempla, where, where did that person get that example from and what was said about that example? Now you can go look it up in a way that you couldn't before. You've mentioned this uh, compendium that you put together as part of the project and how much help that's going to be for the field. What are some other ways that your dissertation project helps the field? I think one of the biggest, you know, we, we've, we've talked a little bit here about gender and just, you know, what is going on with gender in this period um, and contributing to that discourse. But really much more broadly, we're still in a period in our field where we are reevaluating what women contributed to this time period and what their role was. And until not that long ago, about the 1970s, which really is still a pretty recent past, people just assumed that women didn't do anything in the Renaissance, that they didn't contribute anything that they weren't educated, that they had no role, um, that they weren't an essential part of the cultural dynamics um, that were shifting in really interesting ways. And a bunch of really cool scholars got together and just started to look and found a bunch of stuff. So um, the more we see that women 
did. And the more we see that they women were important to the, the cultural dialogue, the more we're just contributing to a different idea of what this period was and who, who was capable within it. So basically, I'm just saying, here's a here's another way women were really important in the period and, and gender was interact with interacted with and that matters. And maybe that should be some of the canonical literature that that we look at. So I'm just really adding to a growing discourse um, that women mattered. And if for anyone that's interested in reading about that, it's the argument broadly defined is called the Corel de Femme, which is French for the woman question. <laughs> um, so it's like the question of women, what role did they have? And it started with this essay in the 1970s called, uh, Did Women Have a Renaissance? It said no. We're trying to argue against that. Who wrote that article? Joan Kelly. Um, and, and she says, no, women didn't, um, and makes some really interesting and problematic arguments about the, the middle ages, but it started a dialogue that is still going on and that is really important. So it's really just another piece of evidence, uh, in that really, really broad, uh, recuperation. Well, Dr. Hoagland, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, you're welcome. It was really fun. Now my brain is spinning and I just want to say more things. Um, so, you know, if you have any questions, I'm here. Well, we'll have to have you back sometime. And uh, in the meantime, uh, listeners can come uh, talk about uh, your work and this episode, uh, the forums on claytemplemedia.com. I'm Glenn McDorman, and until next time, awe atque wale.